Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. All right, friends, we are in a series called Best Life Ever, and it is all about the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can turn there. We're going to start in chapter 8, but the goal that Solomon had when he wrote this letter is that he would take the wisdom that he had, which was a supernatural gift from the Lord. So he wasn't just a wise man. He was the wisest man. God said, there will never be another man after you that will be this wise. So when you listen to his words, I want you to hear them as this is the best way to live. So again, as I said, I don't want you guys just living a life. I want you living the best type of life. I want wisdom and knowledge and happiness and joy to mark all of the things that you do. And so Solomon jumps through a number of things. He's like, I'm going to test every part of life. So the first thing that he tests, this was week one. We looked at work and pleasure. So these are things that you do. And he's like, I want to look at this and see what the best thing is to do. The next week was motivation for work. That's something that's in you. And then last week was technically envisioned, but the week before that we did the, uh, the, four da- the, the four dangerous things that infect your life, corruption, impatience, anger, and nostalgia. These, these, these things infect you. So let me go through that again really quick. There's things that you do, things that are in you, and then things that infect you. So today, we're doing things outside of you that you cannot control. So today is all about a lack of control. As I said in, the, in our Instagram story this morning, there's a number of things that are out of your control. Solomon identifies three of them. There's the unfairness of life, there's death, and then there's randomness. All of these things you have absolutely zero control over. And so Solomon moves from these things that are in you, things that you go and do, things that can infect you, and he moves to this, things that are so far outside of your control that if you don't learn to handle these things, they're gonna crush you. The reason that you and I need to talk about this is because when things are out of our control, often we go and do really, really dumb things. No one goes and becomes an alcoholic because they genuinely enjoy the taste of alcohol. They become that way because of the the way that alcohol makes you feel. And so any, any alcoholic will tell you that the reason they started drinking consistently is because there's things that they could not control. They can't control their wife, but they can drink. They can't control their kids, but they can drink. They can't control their job, but they can drink. Another thing that people do when they're out of control is that they overeat because I can't control human beings, but I can control my food intake. Life hurts and I don't like it, but I love the way that I feel when I eat food, so I'm gonna eat more and more and more because I can control this. There's other things that we do. We start sleeping around. You can't control human beings and relationships, but you can manipulate into physical intimacy. We do that, human beings do that all the time. Another thing that people do when they lack control is they just reserve themselves, they isolate, and they just move away. I can't control who I'm gonna meet, I can't control what other people are gonna say, can't control my job, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna isolate myself away from all human beings. When you and I don't understand the things that are out of our control and when we begin to either try to control them or run from them, we get hurt, other people get hurt, so you and I need to learn how do I respond to unfairness, death, and randomness. And Solomon's gonna walk you through the problem and then the response that he sees is the wisest way to deal with things. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read you chunks of scripture. And again, just like we've done with all of these um, messages in this series, I'm gonna give you some questions at the end to wrestle with at your table. 
So here's the first section of Scripture. This is chapter 8, verse 14. There is something else enigmatic that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is frustrating. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life that God has given them. So Solomon was one of the first individuals to bring about the problem that you and I see all the time, that there are good people in this life and bad things happen to them and that frustrates us. And then there are horrible, wicked people that seem to live a long, healthy, prosperous life. And when you begin to analyze that too much, it's gonna drive you insane. Our church was dealing with this, specifically our staff recently with Pastor Caleb. He's an incredible individual. His spiritual depth is something I aspire to. I love his gentleness and quiet spirit. I've never seen him lose his temper in my life. He's so kind. But this past month, his grandmother-in-law who raised his wife, her mother made some decisions that were not healthy. And so her grandmother had to raise her. She passed away. And then his mother-in-law who didn't make wise decisions ended up in the hospital due to some other complications. And then his wife ended up in the hospital with kidney stones and the surgeon went in to fix it and went into the wrong kidney and then had to back out and go into the other kidney after he woke her up from anesthesia, then put her out again, then did the surgery. Then two days later, his car broke down and he goes to fix it and he replaces the starter by himself and then drives to work two days later and someone steals his car and it still has not been recovered. So why in the world does someone like Caleb who's loving the high schoolers of our community, teaching them the word of God and loving his wife and loving his family, why does all of that happen to him inside the same month? While at the same time, I know an individual and he goes to our church, I love him, but he's an idiot. He, for 40 years, smoked a pack a day at least. And then one day when his granddaughter was sitting on his lap, she goes, Grandpa, you smell bad. And he stopped smoking cold turkey, never smoked again, but he still drinks regularly. And by regularly, I mean a lot. And he's in his 80s. And his body seemingly works fine. So why, when you see some people that are doing really, really good things, they seem to hit all of these speed bumps in life or flat out walls. And then you look at other people that are either straight up wicked or they're just not smart, but they seem to be doing really, really well. Solomon says, that'll frustrate you. That, that level of unfairness. And then you look at others, like it, just make this personal. You look at your life and you're doing what you're supposed to. You're loving your family. You're loving your siblings. You're going to work. You're doing your job. You're going to church. You're praying. You're reading your Bible. But things don't seem to be happening the way that you want them to. Life is slower paced or life is just hard. But then you look at other friends or family members and they're doing flat out wicked things. Or, or again, maybe not wicked, just not smart. And yet they keep winning, so to speak. And they keep moving forward in this life. And you're like, when is it going to be my turn? If you dwell on this, the danger is that you will become overwhelmed with the seeming unfairness of life. And Solomon says, you need to watch out. And so again, the wisest man on earth has an answer. So let me read it again. He says, I commend to you, or I, here's what I give to you. Here's what I think is best. I commend to you the enjoyment of life. Now just pause and think about this. He has not in any way changed any of your circumstances in this text. 
at all. Nothing has changed about your life, whether it's fair or unfair. He says, what I want for you is to make a decision. What I want for you, what I want to reveal to you is that inside every single one of you is the ability to make a choice. I'm either going to whine about my life or quit or I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to make a choice and he tells you how. He says, there's nothing better. Wisest man in the world. There is nothing better in this life than to eat and drink and be glad. Those three, I want you to hold on to those three. Eat and drink and be glad. Really, there's only two of them and I'll explain that in a second. Eat and drink, I want you to hold on to that because he explains that in a deeper way in the next movement. But glad, I want you to process this for a second because some of you are gonna get frustrated because this is gonna seem like semantics, like we're just splitting hairs, like this is just a, a language problem, but it's so much more than that. One of the only ways that you can begin to enjoy a life that is seemingly unfair is for you to begin to reframe everything that you know. Reframe every thought that you've ever had inside the paradigm of thankfulness. That's the only way you jump to a level of joy in this life and actually enjoy it. So you just gotta practice this. I need you to take a common thought that you have that's negative and I need you to reframe it. In this age group, there's very few of you that are very excited about your car, okay? Some of you love your car, you got a great working car. Many of you got a car that just flat out does not work almost ever, okay? I, I resonate with that. But if you begin to say things all the time on a consistent basis, my car is old, my car is broken down, my car goes to the shop all the time. When you do that, if you do that one time, that's fine, I'll give you one time. But if every single time you're explaining that to your friend, like, hey, how's life? And it's like, well, the car's really not working much lately. Or if someone goes, how's the car? And your common statement is, well, it, it's working, but if all the time you are reframing things to sound helpless, hopeless, and it, there's consistent loss, then all you're doing is going, here's what I don't have, here's what I don't have, here's what I don't have, here's what I don't have. If all day long you are framing all of your thoughts inside a paradigm of loss, I don't care who you are, you will get depressed. There will not be joy, there will not be gladness. He says, only then will joy accompany you. So back up, what is only then? He says, you need to be glad. So you need to learn as a maturing adult in Jesus, how do I reframe common statements? Your car's old, that's fine, reframe it. You have a car. Your car breaks down a lot, reframe that. You have the money to fix it, okay? Your job sucks, reframe it, you have a job. Your job's not fun, reframe it, you have money to do what you want. You're single and you don't like it, reframe it. You have freedom to participate in relationships that if you were in a committed relationship, if I could talk, you couldn't do. If you are single and you're like, man, I hate being single, pause, reframe. What does God have for you right now that maybe he wouldn't if you were in a committed relationship? Whatever you are doing commonly to complain, reframe that. He says the only way you experience joy in a life that is unfair is to process life in a paradigm of thankfulness. That's the only way you make it. So you and I need to get better at reframing commonly depressive comments to others. And that's all up here, okay? It's not changing circumstance. It's changing how you look at circumstance. What did James say in his book? He says, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Now pause, think about the statement. Did he say, go and change your circumstance? 
He did not. He said, when you look at the difficult season of life, you don't whine, you don't complain, change your thinking. Consider this joy. Season sucks, don't worry about it. Change the thinking. Your fight for a great, healthy, joyous life is up here. It's all up here. And so if you're like, man, this season really sucks, reframe. Reframe. Because that is the only way you get to the place where you're like, God, however unfair this life is, thank you for, and then list. You find this all throughout scripture. When you read the prayers of Paul, here's, if you want a really fun devotional, take every prayer Paul has and read it on a daily basis. Here's what you're gonna find. Almost never, almost never, I would say like 90% of the time, he never prays to change his current circumstance. And the man was getting beaten. The man was getting arrested. The man was falsely in prison. The man was attacked by animals. And he almost never prays, Lord, would you change my circumstances? He says, Lord, would you make me stronger? Lord, would you change who I am as a person? The only time that he ever admits to wanting to change his circumstances was when he prays that God would remove the thorn that he has. And we don't even know what the thorn was. He never says it. That's the only time Paul prays, Lord, would you change my circumstance? And even in that one, God says no. So whatever you're looking at in this life that's angry or that's angering, frustrating, or sad, I get it. I'm not trying to demean your emotions, but I am saying, do you want to get stronger? Do you want to have grit and what it takes to make it through this life? Then you need to reframe and you need to get better at organizing your thoughts up here. The battle's up here in your mind, friends. So the first reality is unfairness and how you fight it is to be thankful. Now, later at the end of chapter eight, he jumps into chapter nine and he says, I, I considered unfairness. So he just sits on this one for a while. Of the three, he sits on this one probably the most. And he goes, I analyze this. So I want me and you, before we go to his conclusion, I want you and me to analyze unfairness for a second. So unfairness is someone getting something they don't deserve or someone like you not getting what you think you do deserve. So in, in what he describes, in the story that he describes, who is doing the giving of the unfairness? It's God. And who is receiving the unfairness, quote, unquote? It's you and me. Whatever it was, whether it was good or bad. So God is doing the giving. You and me are doing the receiving. So what does this mean about your life? In many respects, you have absolutely no control over what you receive, only the attitude with which you have when you receive it and how you respond. You have almost no control over what you are given by the Lord. And so he jumps into this and he goes, here's his conclusion. Nobody knows what awaits them, love or hate. You have no idea. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the clean and the unclean, they all die so as he processes unfairness, no matter how difficult or not difficult your life is, he, he just jumps down to the second one. He goes, do you wanna know what another reality is for your life? You're gonna die. And this is something for the mature Christian that you need to hold in your mind. I talked about this in Bible study on Thursday. You have to hold the temporal reality of this life in mind all the time because it motivates you to something. Knowing this life will end motivates you to something. So he wants to talk about this. So this section of scripture is a little bit longer. Bear with me, but just enjoy this. This is the beginning of chapter nine. Starting in verse three, he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes everyone. The hearts of people are full of evil and there's madness in their hearts while they live. 
and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Verse 7. Here's his conclusion. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your spouse whom you love all the days of your enigmatic life that God has given you under the sun. For this is your lot in life in your work under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. So friends, here's the reality. You're all gonna die. Now that produces in you a feeling and you need to analyze this. When I tell you you're gonna die, what happens in here, in your mind? What happens in your heart? For some of you, and I don't mean to insult you, but some of you, that brings about apathy. I say you're gonna die and you're like, well, all right, screw it. You know, we're gonna die, so might as well make the best of things. There's no joy there. There's no energy there. There's no passion. There's no pursuit of excellence. And yet, when he talks about this, he says, you're gonna die, therefore, go enjoy some things. You're gonna die, therefore, work excellently. Those are his two things. So note takers, how do you combat death? Number one, enjoy good, simple things. And number two, work your butt off. That is how you combat apathy and the fear of death. Let me explain this. So this is why when I said eat and drink, let, let's pull that into your, your mind's eye right now. There's a number of times throughout this text, not just in this one, but in, in prior parts of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, you wanna know what's good for you to do? I want you to go eat good food. And I want you to go find good drink and I want you to partake of it and I want you to do it with a delightful, joyful spirit. You wanna know what's really funny about the church? We do this all the time and I don't like it, it bugs me. We start thinking it is more righteous to suffer than go enjoy good things. And so we don't upgrade things. Like I love my church, I love that they gave me a job and I'm hoping other staff members don't listen to this podcast online. But doggone it, I hate it often when we don't upgrade anything because we're like, well, I don't wanna spend our money there, we gotta do something for the kingdom. And I'm like, okay, but our carpet is red from like the 60s. I mean, I'm telling you, when we upgraded things in the building, people got angry. When we, gave our, when we bought new carpet, people got mad. When we took the pews out and got new chairs, people got mad. And we do things sometimes even in our hearts. Like I was talking to a couple the other day, I was doing premarital, and the, the husband was like, my, my, my soon-to-be wife, my fiance does a really funny thing. She goes to the, or we go to a restaurant, and when she scans the menu, she automatically, her mind finds the cheapest item and she orders it, no matter what. Doesn't matter what the item is. She just scans the menu and she goes, cheapest, boom. That's what I want. He scans the menu and he goes, this would delight my heart most. So I'm gonna order this. Now, you all know, some of your, your mind's already racing. You're like, so are you preaching like materialism? Like, should I go buy the most expensive thing? No. But friends, there is a massive difference in a McDonald's hamburger and a steak. There's a huge, huge difference between Kool-Aid and a good bottle of wine. When you look at this life, what did he just say? Like, go over the list. Go over the list of what he says. 
He says, I want you to eat your food with gladness. I want there to be thankfulness when you eat. I want you to drink your wine with a joyful heart. Have fun. God has already approved of what you do. Then he says, I want you to be clothed in white and anoint your head with oil. This is where you gotta get better at interpreting scripture. What does that mean? It could mean, Revelation says, they wore white, which was their good works. And anoint your head with oil often means anoint your head with the spirit of God. However, I don't think this is metaphorical. I think it's physical because every other part of the list was all physical. So what one commentator says, and I really like what he said, he said, God has already approved of your works. And what that means is that such enjoyment is God's will for you. This encouraging word does not contradict the fact that we are stewards of all that God entrusts to us. However, this verse should help us realize that it's not sinful to take pleasure in what God has given us, even some luxuries. We need to balance gratefulness and generosity, keeping some things and giving others away. The balance is not easy, but it is very important. I love talking with Phil about cars because I don't care about cars. I really don't. I just want mine to work and get from A to B. And, and he cares about that too. But when Phil works on a car, he's taking it to a new level of aesthetic beauty. And I know that he would never use that language, but he's making it look cooler. Why? That, that level of living your life has no value at all unless God is real. Making something simply look better or performing that much better, taking a car from good to great, okay? Caleb likes barbecuing, but not burnt hamburgers. He likes doing three-hour tri-tip or six-hour ribs, okay? God bless that man. <laughs> Hannah doesn't just like writing notes on a simple blank piece of paper. She enjoys a, a hand-painted cover and, and multiple layers of, of beauty on the paper and, and special pens, and, and she likes handwriting it and not typing it. That matters. Those things matter. And so God looks at you and he says, friends, I want you to go buy a really nice journal and I want you to buy a really nice pen and I want you to enjoy writing. And I want you to go and I want you to get a really cool mug and I want you to get really nice tea and I want you to sit in the morning and enjoy the way that it smells. I don't, I don't want you to just go get Lipton iced tea. Like, let's banish that idea for the rest of humanity. I want you to go get coffee, but not Folgers. I want you to get sister's coffee because that is the best, okay, period. I want you to go and enjoy things. You wanna know one of the only ways you escape ap the apathy of death, just giving up? He says, I want you to go and enjoy life. I want you to find those things that make you, you. And I want you to enjoy that. That's hobbies, friends. I want you to upgrade things, not because, and I don't want you to be wasteful, but I want you to upgrade them because they're beautiful. I want you to look at this life and I want you to take some value in it. Value in your stuff, value in your time, value in your hobbies. Because God I don't think it's overly righteous to say, you know what, I only spend my money on kingdom projects. I'm like, okay, good for you. Like, go enjoy something. God gave you taste buds for a reason. There's not just one flavor, there's thousands of flavors. There's not one scent, there's thousands of scents. There's not one color, there's thousands of colors. The world in some ways was meant to be enjoyed and God says, go and enjoy it. But here's the second thing that he says. Whatever you find to do with your hands, do it with your everything. Here's where we can have some fun, but also get a little convicting. You see, 
I've talked to many of you, and I'm not trying to shame anybody, but sometimes the way that we talk about our work is very disrespectful to God. Because when you jump into Colossians, Paul says, don't work as if you're working for a human boss. That person, that man or woman, they're gonna die. I don't die. I am God and you are working for me. Whatever your job is, he says, work at it as if God was your manager and was walking on the floor, analyzing what you're doing. If there's some conviction there, let it sit for a second. Let that one sit. Not trying to shame you, but when you work, go work your butt off. Don't just be a barista that's just pouring coffee. Be the best barista. Don't just go to school and get A grade. Go be the best student. Don't just go build something with your hands. Build it as if you're making it for yourself. All throughout scripture, there's this odd pattern of a call to excellence. God doesn't want some of you, he wants all of you. God doesn't want a little bit of your skill, he wants all of your skill. And then once you have it, he says, develop it. Get better at whatever you're doing. Have fun, enjoy life, and work your butt off. That's one of the only ways you escape looking at death and being overwhelmed and saying, screw it, I'm just gonna give up. God doesn't want that for you at all. And he moves on to the third one. This is in verse 11. He says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. I say many times that we are unbelievably blessed to grow up in the United States, and I genuinely believe that we are, but there's also certain things that every generation is gonna face, and I think it's okay to say that some generations have it better than others, and I'm not gonna stand up here and whine and say that ours is somehow the worst. I don't think it is, but there are things that you will face either generationally or even just in small moments of time, such as like the fires up in the gorge. We had a number of families in our church that were affected, one family, they were sleeping and the fire moved so fast that it hit their front door and they couldn't escape. Front door, garage, completely blocked. Side door, blocked. The only way they could get out of the house was in the backyard and their backyard was real short and then had a pretty steep drop off into the lake. And so they sprinted down the hill and just jumped in the water and had to wait to come get rescued as they watched their house burn. You have no idea when your time is. Time and chance in some way should unnerve you. Now, as young adults, we often don't think about death, but the older that you get, the more death as a category is present in your thinking. And so as wise individuals, I wanna encourage you, add death early. Add death as a category in your mind early. I was talking with a buddy, he's in our church, and he um, just turned 60, and he was reflecting. He goes, you know, I look at my life now, and I go, okay, I had zero to 30. That was trimester one. I had 30 to 60, trimester two, and now I'm in the last lap. I'm in my last 30 years. What am I gonna do with it? The wise individual recognizes that right now you are in lap number one, and that's a blessing. Don't waste that. Don't wait until you're 60 and go, oh shoot, last lap, better, better do something. You're in lap number one, make the best of it. Don't let time escape you. Now also understand that I mean, I, we had a, a guy, I won't call him a friend, I didn't really know him that well, but he came to the Courthouse Athletic Club every day that I worked. 
every single day, same time, did the same routine. He lifted, he, he ran, he ate all the right food. I don't think he drank to my knowledge, but he goes out running one day in the fields in Minto Brown behind our building and he's on the trail, boom, heart attack, died. On, on the trail, body limp, dead in that moment. And he did all the right things. You have no idea when your time is. You don't know what's gonna befall the United States. You have, we have no idea what's coming. We can guess, but Solomon says, if the wise man says he truly knows what's next, he, he doesn't, he's lying to you. He has no idea. Nobody knows what's next in this country or around the world. And so how do you respond to this? Look at the way that he says it. He goes, I don't care how fast you are. The fastest person doesn't always win. I don't care how strong you are. The strongest person doesn't always win the match. Here's a scary one. He goes, food doesn't even come to the wise. See, don't make the mistake of thinking that Ecclesiastes is this giant call to just wisdom. That's not what it is. He goes, even if you've got a bunch of wisdom, you have no idea. You could be the wisest person in the room and die tomorrow. You could be the wisest person in the room and lose your job tomorrow. You have no idea. So the way that he says it almost calmly is this way of saying, you know what? I accept this. I accept it. I don't overly grieve it. I'm not whining. I'm not pouting. I'm not depressed. I accept that sometimes life is just random. Any parent that loses a child early has to struggle with this. Sometimes there's no reason why your child dies. It's just, it's random. You have no idea sometimes why you lose a job and you try to come up with it. I, we've been doing this lately with our home. I know this is not anywhere close to death or anything that important, but normally you're under contract for a little less than a month. We've been under contract for over three months. I don't know why God's making us wait this long. I have no idea. And I can either get angry about it or I can go, you know what, God, sometimes stuff is just random and I just need to learn to wait. So sometimes God's saying, I love you, just wait. And you're like, God, but why? And he's like, I'm not gonna tell you why. You need to trust me. I'm just gonna have you wait and you need to believe I'm doing it for a good reason. Now, let me tell you a story. In 1892, there was a man named Reinhold Niebuhr and he wrote a sermon. In it, he wrote a prayer and I almost guarantee you, you know what this prayer is. It became so popular, it became the prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous. It became so popular that actually before that, before um, Alcoholics Anonymous adopted it, the US government adopted it and asked his permission to put it on cards and send it out to all their soldiers in World War II. This prayer is known as the prayer of serenity, and it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. He originally actually wrote it like this. That was a, a, view, or a, a version that changed. Here's what he said originally. He starts with courage. He says, Father, Give us courage to change what must be altered, serenity to accept what cannot be helped, and the insight to know the one from the other. My friends, what is required of you to handle the unfairness, death, and randomness of life is courage, courage to change things that you need to go home. You know you need to change some things. Some of you are Debbie Downers, I love you, but you're always whining and you need to reset, you need to reframe. That needs to be something that you do. Others of you, I love you, but you are apathetic. I mean, you're not thinking of death, but you've just given up. And you're in your early 20s and you've already quit. 
and you need to get a fire under your butt and you need to go work and you need to find something that you love and you're passionate about and just go change something. And others of you are living in fear because you're so terrified something bad might happen and you don't like the randomness of life, but you need to learn to live with it. That's part of growing up. So some of you have something to do when you go home. And what I want you to do right now in this moment is sit and ask these questions. I've got three for you. Number one, what is out of my control that I'm currently trying to put under my control? Okay, you could sit on this one for a while. Relationship status, job, money, whatever it is. What are you trying to put under your control that is not under your control? Number two, what are ways that I'm coping with my out of control life? Now, this one's more personal. So if you don't want to reveal this one, that's fine. But some of you already, you're abusing sex, you're abusing alcohol, you're abusing your body, you're abusing your job because you're out of control. Life's out of control and you don't like it. So you're doing something stupid. I love you. Let's change that. Number three, of the three examples Solomon gives, which one bothers me the most? Is it the unfairness of life? Is it death? Is it the randomness of life? What is it? What bothers me most and what is God asking me to do about it? Thank you, God, for the privilege that it is to meet together publicly. Thank you for this building and the shelter that it provides. Thank you for a church that invests in young adults. Thank you uh, for your word and for its message. So I pray a, a blessing of courage and wisdom on this group. Would they have courage to change the things that they need to? So would you give everyone an incredible eye today and the rest of this week to analyze what they need to let go of and what they need to change? And God, I pray for wisdom to uh, move forward and make some of the tough decisions they're going to need to make. And uh, would you bless them, God, in the little things? Bless them in their hobbies. Bless them in the, the ways that they increase the beauty around them and uh, just the things that they have fun doing, whether it's food or projects or whatever it is. So thank you for those little joys that make life really worth living. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.